you're, nobody's going to show up at an event, meet somebody for the first time and expect to get business or job referrals. You've got to develop relationships with people. I'm Kim Mutcherson. I'm the co-dean of Rutgers Law School on the Camden campus, and this is The Power of Attorney. Today's episode involves a graduate of the Camden campus of the law school, Carlos Boyard, who actually graduated in 97, same year I graduated from law school. Um, and you also, you're a double Rutgers, right? So you did Rutgers undergrad and then also did um, Rutgers for law school. So um, I appreciate very much that you're that you're here today um, and really looking forward to our conversation. Well, me too. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm excited. Absolutely. Um, so one of the most fun parts of this podcast for me is that I get the opportunity to hear about the path that people took to become lawyers. Um, and so I would love to start with you in the same way that I start with everybody else, which is tell me your origin story, right? Of all the things that you could have done with your life, you somehow ended up um, as a lawyer. So what was what was the path that got you here? Sure. I'll, I'll, I have a strong opinion on this about how people become lawyers. I, I'm, I believe that you either think you want to be a lawyer from when you're very young or, or something happens along the way that makes you wish that you were more connected to the legal community and you would do things differently. For me, it's the, it's the former. Uh, when I was young, I expect that I was an argumentative child, and and so people would tell me, my parents would tell me that I should be a lawyer when I grew up, and that that kind of infused my identity, uh, self identity, from when I was very young, uh, not even really knowing what a lawyer was when I was a child. And as I grew older, as I watched TV and watched movies, lawyers were always depicted. Uh, in interesting ways on media. And, and it just kind of solidified what I thought a lawyer would be. And, and I always projected myself on that path. It wasn't really until college that I started to get into the weeds of what the law is and what it would mean to be a lawyer, still being a little bit naive because my family, my family were immigrants to this country, didn't know any lawyers, didn't know anybody in the legal community whatsoever. So really it wasn't until day one of law school that I got to really see what it was. But mm. um, that, so that's my path. Um, it was a little bit immature and naive in the early days, but um, I'm glad, I'm glad I took the choices that I chose. Well, I, I would love to talk to you about that a little bit more. I mean, one of the things that I, uh, again, have really enjoyed about this podcast and in interviewing um, a number of our alums is a lot of them, and we didn't you know, plan this, but a lot of them are you know, first gen, either first gen college or first gen law school. Um, a lot of them um, come from families that immigrated um, to the United States. You know, they're first in their family um, to get a law degree. Um, and I think that that's always, I mean, the transition to law school is is difficult, I think, for lots of folks. But I think it, that, can, that can particularly be the case if you don't have somebody in your family who can sort of talk you through that transition or somebody who's kind of a sounding board for you. So I'd love to hear a little bit more. I mean, I imagine that your parents were really excited for you and, you know, happy for you that you were going to Rutgers and then going to Rutgers Law School. But what was that transition like for you, right? Yeah. So just a little bit about my parents. I think that's important to know. My, my father came to this country as a political refugee in 1961 from Cuba. 
uh, and he came to this country by himself at age 15, mm. they, the, there was a, an operation called Operation Peter Pan, Pedro Pan, where the Catholic Church would take children of families that were at risk of persecution by the new Castro regime. And so my father, they put him on a plane. He was greeted on the other side by a priest, and he finished out his childhood alone in an orphanage. Um, and that really kind of formulated a lot of his identity and, and his beliefs uh, going forward. And my mother, slightly different story, came here in, also in the 60s from the Dominican Republic, limited English, um, and, and started here as a teenager again. Uh, the Dominican Republic was going through a civil war and, and all of that. So, but, but as part of that path, the, the immigrant experience was very much part of my childhood. And it, it infused me with the identity I have today. Uh, what they what they did, and I think this became a factor in me choosing the law, is they really imbued me with uh, a love of this country, a gratefulness to this country, understanding that nobody owes you anything, but here you can you can make yourself into whatever you think you want to be with enough hard work. Uh, and, and so that kind of love of the country love of the legal system, uh, respect for it was always part of my childhood. Um, and however, as thrilled as they were for me to go to Rutgers and go to law, law school, they, they didn't really fully understand what that path was. And so, and I, I expect that that's the case for many, uh, many people who go to law school who don't have that experience. And unfortunately, it happens to happen a little bit more often for diverse law students, uh, where especially children of immigrants or people who are immigrants, you show up for day one of law school, you're not mentally in the right place to do what you need to do to get yourself ready, to study correctly, to take the right choices, to apply for the right jobs, to apply for law journal, those kinds of things. It's all bewildering. Mm-hmm. And you have to learn quickly, and and I did, and but definitely there are other kids that were that had advantages, and that's a good thing that they have those advantages. I'm not uh, saying that that's a problem. It's just there's a it's an uphill climb for kids like me when they're coming in through law school, and and the resources are there to help them, but there's no substitute for that kind of background with and familiarity and family connections, that kind of thing. It's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I th- you know we have tried. Um, particularly over the last uh, several years, um, um, but even before that, um, you know, to really think about what are some of the things that we can do institutionally that are helpful um, for students who come in um, and who are first gen, because I do think that there are sometimes, um, you know, these little these little bits of background information, right? So, you know, people come in and we say, oh, you got a network, you got a network. And sometimes we'll have a student sort of whisper, I don't know what you really want me to do. You know, Um, and so, you know, really trying to help people get a sense of, you know, what does it mean to be in this space and what does it mean to be able um, to build a legal career? So did you find that there were particular people who you gravitated to, whether it was other students or faculty or administrators um, who helped you, you know, navigate this space that was a pretty foreign space for you? Uh, yes, yes, and no. Uh, and I have to take some of the blame for myself. I was always the kind of kid who didn't want to bother the teachers or, or people. I always said, you know what, I'm I'm smart enough. I could figure this out. So, mm-hmm. I, I, and and 
going back in time, I'd like to kick myself in the head and say, <laughs> listen, you, you need to accept help and take help where you can. And that's something I've tried to pass on to my kids. But but yes, there were there were definitely people. I, one that stands out for me, Dean Baker, now retired. Uh, Angela Baker was my research and writing professor. And we ended up becoming friends and staying friends for a long time. I, I just saw her recently. Uh, it was wonderful to see her. But um, what helped me also was back then we still had Alianza. And, mm-hmm. and I got to network with and become friends with other students who had similar backgrounds and similar paths to law school. And that and I made my own network of friends and and having that and having that kind of interaction felt really good and, and was able to uh, help me get my head on straight. And and I think I did just fine in the end. Yeah. But but it was you have to make those connections. Otherwise, you're you're alone in the in the ocean. Right. Absolutely. And can for, for folks who are listening, can you just tell people what Alianza is? Sure. Alianza is the law, Latino, Hispanic law student organization group at, at the law school. And um, I was an officer. I was the treasurer of that organization. Uh, and it's just a place, it's safe space for Latino law students to get together and, and get to know one another and, and do certain activities. So it was great. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that I say to students at orientation all the time, right? How important it is to sort of find your your folks, right? Find people who are going to be a support system. And it might be Alianza. It might be, um, you know, the Black Law Students Association. It might be public interest work, right? Whatever it is, find some group of people who can be that um, support system as you go through law school. And then ultimately, a lot of times those people continue to be your support system, even after you graduate. That's, that's well said. And I, and I think one of the obstacles we've already talked about is coming to law school without that network of people who can support you and building it from scratch is, is a challenge. But things like the groups you just talked about, the whether it's the Black Law Students Association, Alianza, that kind of thing, or, and I'm a big proponent of this, obviously, bar associations like the Hispanic Bar Association in New Jersey, the Hispanic National Bar Association. Back when I was in law school, I didn't know much about their existence. The internet was just kind of taking off. You couldn't really Google anything. Google didn't exist. And the very first time I heard about the Hispanic Bar Association in New Jersey was when I was a practicing lawyer. uh, and, And they put me on a panel with the then president. But because we were down here in Camden, those kinds of groups didn't come all the way down south very often. So, but but today those groups provide resources and a built-in network of people who are driven by the passion to help their uh, their fellow law students and kind of um, allow them the network and, and feedback that that you didn't get as a law student. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's something. Those are the kinds of resources that are available for law students and and and. I talk to a lot of law students. They don't want to bother practicing lawyers. They're afraid yeah. that they're bothering you. They don't, you know, but, but this, these are passionate groups of people who want to give back. And so they absolutely need to uh, take advantage of those resources. That to me is such a great piece of advice because I think that a lot of students don't, um, you know, they, they want to sort of do that networking thing and they don't know how to do it. But, you know, joining Hispanic Bar Association or the National Bar Association 
um, you know, is, is a way to sort of more easily insert yourself into the world of practicing attorneys. Um, and you know that there are going to be people there who want to mentor, who want to be helpful. Um, and so it is, I think, so, sort of sometimes an, an, an easier way um, to, to get your feet wet um, than maybe just calling someone up out of the blue and saying, hey, I'm a law student, talk to me. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and there are, um, and membership in those organizations is free and it looks great on your resume. So I don't know why anybody yeah. doesn't join all of those groups. Absolutely. Um, so I want to, I want to eventually get to talking about the Hispanic National Bar Association. Um, but I want to finish a little bit more, um, of your origin story because, um, you know, so you go to, you go to law school, um, you don't have lawyers in your family. You got to sort of make that transition. You know, you do well um, in law school. What was your what was your thought process about what you were going to do with your with your law degree? It, it shifted quite a bit over time. When before I came to law school, I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor. Mm. I came to law school and I thought I wanted to be a, a transactional tax attorney in law school. I don't know why. I just had some good professors that convinced me of that. And then um, it, it, really my life changed when I started taking trial advocacy classes, classes that got me on my feet. And I just kind of felt that adrenaline rush and thought, this is what I want to do. I, I don't care what subject matter. I just want to be a trial lawyer. I want to be on my feet and arguing cases in front of a judge and a jury. And so I that was my mindset coming out of law school. I got a trial level clerkship which was wonderful here at the Camden County Superior Court. And my first job was doing plaintiff's personal injury, plaintiff's construction uh, law, mass tort kind of a thing. And, and I wasn't passionate about the subject matter, but I was passionate about the opportunities I got in court. I got to try a few cases, that kind of a thing. And then the opportunity came for to work at Archer. They were looking for somebody to do environmental litigation. And I didn't have a leading passion to do environmental law. I had never taken an environmental law course, but mm. I knew that I knew Archer's reputation. I knew mm -hmm. their reputation as, as one of the elite firms in the state. And, and I knew, I knew people who worked there and I, I really wanted to work there. So I told them, look, I don't know anything about environmental law, but I do know how to litigate cases. And if you think that's helpful, then I would love to work here. And they bought it. And they hired me, and that was twenty-one. That was twenty-one years ago. Uh, I've grown to really, really love environmental law. I think it's a complicated, sophisticated practice that keeps me entertained. It's never boring. It's always growing. Um, there's scientific elements to it. I really enjoy it. But, but I did going into it. I didn't have a burning desire to do it. If that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the things, again, that we sort of talk or I talk to students about a lot um, is that, you know, what you come into law school thinking that you're going to do isn't necessarily what you're going to end up doing. And what you do immediately out of law school isn't necessarily where you're going to be, you know, 20 years after, right? That opportunities come along um, and it's good to say yes to opportunity and sort of see, you know, um, um, where things take you. So I think that's a, a really good lesson in terms of thinking about um, um, how you build a career. But there are two pieces in there that I really want to uh, dig down into a little bit more. So one is 
you know, oftentimes students will say to us, oh, I want to I want to practice health law or I want to practice environmental law or I want to practice, you know, X law. Um, and then when you say to them, well, you know, what do environmental lawyers do? They sort of get this glazed look in their eyes. Right. So they, they have this practice area, but no real sense of what it looks like um, to do that work. So I'd love to talk to you about that. And then the other thing that I really want to talk to you about, you know, we talk all the time about um how much settlement goes on, right? That that a lot of lawyers, you know, most of their work is going to be settling cases um, and not actually doing trials. So I like to talk to people, um, you know, who are who are litigation attorneys and and who are doing trials um, about what that experience um, is like, because I think that you know. Um, so many people get the impression now that, you know, the only people who go into court are, you know, maybe prosecutors and public defenders and, you know, family law or, or um, those folks, but 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 that it's not sort of the natural thing that people do anymore, which I think is um, is, is obviously not always true. Um, right. So which one would you rather talk about first, the litigation well, piece or, or environmental law? The, the yeah, the, that environmental piece, the first piece is an easy one. I can get right into that quickly. Uh, you're you're absolutely right. When you're coming into law school, the vast majority, or in law school, the vast majority of law students don't really have a clue what it means. <laughs> and and clue number one in the environmental context, sometimes I'll tell people that I do environmental law, and they'll say, "Oh, well, thank you for everything you're doing for the planet." <laughs> um, and you said you you don't have a, they have this image that environmental lawyers are standing in a river holding a fish, trying to <laughs> you know skimming for garbage, but that's not at all what environmental law is in practice. Mm -hmm. And and there's the only substitute for that is to go out and get experience. The experience is literally invaluable, um, not only to figure out what you want to do, but figure out what you don't want to do. Yes. I, yep. For example, I, I think I told you that I went through a phase where I wanted to be a, a tax attorney. Well, I did an internship one semester at Rutgers with the IRS. And that was really, they were wonderful. They treated me well. The work was interesting, but I came out of it saying, this is not what I want to do. And that yeah. could have saved me decades worth of working in that field. So you just, you need that experience, even if it's, it doesn't matter what they're paying you. Just know that, that you're putting something on your resume that shows that you continue to progress as a lawyer, as a prospective lawyer and, and moving the ball forward and being able to know what you want. And what you don't want is is really critical. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, you know, turning to the other question, um, the issue of settlements and trials. So, first of all, it's even rarer to try cases in the environmental world because the cases we have less cases than some some other types of practitioners, but our cases are bigger and they last mm -hmm. longer. Mm -hmm. I've got one case with a docket number from 2007 that was filed and it's still going on today. Um, and, and when they do get tried, they are lengthy trials. The last mm -hmm. trial I had took six months mm. of, of being on my feet in the courtroom. And the one before that was five months. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's a long time to be away from your family. Yeah. Um, the, so they, they come, they, they don't come very often, those kinds of trials, but there are plenty of lawyers who are trying cases every day, mm -hmm. prosecutors, criminal defenders, criminal defense attorneys, uh, family law attorneys, personal injury attorneys, certain types mm -hmm. of personal injury attorneys, landlord tenant. There, there's a lot, there are a lot of areas that get into court day in and day out, and there's no substitute for that kind of courtroom experience. Uh, JAG attorneys, people in the mm -hmm. military, they, they're on their feet constantly. Um, 
But just because you're not trying cases to conclusion doesn't mean there aren't other types of advocacy. Like you can do things like Daubert hearings, Rule 104 evidentiary hearings, arguing motions, those kinds of things. They're equally valuable being on your feet in front of uh, a judge. So yes, they're not. They're still not common, and settlement is is still the preferred outcome for everybody. I, I like to say, if a case is proceeding to trial, then one or both of the lawyers are are doing something wrong, because mm. if it's if it's a well litigated case on both sides, then there's always room for compromise. Mm-hmm. It's just a question of making sure your 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 clients understand that. But if if somebody has has positioned the case in a way that makes it impossible to settle, then somebody's making a mistake. Someone's not valuing it correctly. Someone's not managing the client's expectations correctly. And and that's that's often what leads to trial. Or one side has nothing to lose. Right. And you know, and and that's a shame. But right. But but good lawyers tend to settle cases much more often than than try them. I want to talk some about um, Archer and Griner and where you've been for for a very long time. You're a partner there, um, and obviously, you know, at at Rutgers Law, we have a really great relationship with Archer. You all have been amazingly good to us, and you know, uh, lots lots of Rutgers Law folks uh, end up at Archer, which is really great. But you know, one of the things that I particularly like about Archer is it feels like a really good place for young lawyers, right? A place where you can, you know, build a career, where you can be supported, um, and where you can be mentored. Um, And that is, that's not true of all law firms, right? There has to be a particular kind of commitment um, to what kind of law firm that you want to be. So I would love to talk a little bit about um, kind of law firm culture, Right. And how do you build a culture where um, young lawyers can be successful, but also a culture? And I know that this is something that is equally as important to you, where um, lawyers from a lot of different backgrounds, diverse lawyers, lawyers of color, women um, can be successful. Right. Because some of the concerns that we have are, you know, you look at our profession and our profession, unfortunately, really lacks racial diversity. So, you know, how do we build spaces where young lawyers feel supported and where lawyers from a whole range of, you know, races and genders and sexual orientations uh, feel like they can be successful? Right. Well, and, and there's no perfect answer. We're all struggling to to do what we can to rectify those inequities. Um, and let me be Frank, right at the outset, Archer, I think, does a good job in these areas, but we don't do a perfect job. We mm-hmm. we are we have a ways to go still. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very blessed this year to have uh, the support of my colleagues. They elected me to the firm's board of directors, and and that was a very proud moment for me. Um, but it also allows me to bring my perspective and my background to bear whenever we're making decisions as leaders at the firm. Um, Backing up a second, I think the most important thing you need to do for, I'm going to talk about associates for a minute, for associates in particular, and to cultivate that long-term relationship and investment is you've got to make it clear that there's a there's a future for them. Mm-hmm. The second that associate thinks that there there's no more room to move up, then they're going to be unhappy. But if, if that associate thinks that there's a path forward for them, 
They can make partner. They can be, get equity. They can uh, manage the firm someday. That, that the firm is invested both not only financially, but with sweat equity. They're invested in you and they believe in you. If they believe that, then the rest of the stuff matters a lot less, um, regardless of the person's background. So that to me is the most important factor. Um, but all the rest of the issues, helping people to feel at home, uh, the, the most important factor, you've got to have support from the top at the firm. You've, your leaders at the firm have to buy in. And if you do that, then you're able to kind of push down the values and mission goals to other leaders in the firm, to the practice group chairs, to departmental heads, those kinds of things. And so that's, to me, if you don't have that, you're never going to build the, that kind of atmosphere from the ground up. You got to build it from yeah. the top down. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not enough to simply hire diverse summer clerk classes to hire entry-level lawyers uh, that are diverse, where you end up with good diversity at the lowest levels but then it doesn't percolate up. Uh, or if it does, it's a nine-year lead time or a 20-year lead time to get there. That's, that's great that you're making those kinds of investments in, in diverse young legal talent, but we know the attrition rates are, are high. That's just, you know, you, you're not going to see a significant chunk of those people still with the firm 30 years from now. Uh, that's just not realistic in the, in our community. So you've got to also build an environment of diverse leadership through lateral hiring. Mm -hmm. You've got to, uh, you know, it, there's no substitute to seeing somebody who looks like you with a similar background in a leadership position that you can go to, to commiserate with or, or confide in, or even just, you know, just to feel like you're where you ought to be, that there's plenty of black and brown people walking around that you can just makes you feel like America where, mm -hmm. you know, instead of some strange land that you walk into every morning. So um, you've got to, those are some of the things that I think that they're, they're not at the micro level. They're at the macro level. They're big picture items. If you don't have those things, it makes everything else a lot more difficult. Like I, I talk to a lot of law firms, especially now that I'm president of HMBA. And they ask me these questions like, what can we do better to retain our diverse lawyers? And, and what they're really looking for is, is something easy. They want to hear, well, if you do more <laughs> events for Hispanic Heritage Month, and, you know, then, then, then they'll be happier. But it's not. That's, that stuff, you know, it's important to, to, to recognize and celebrate our differences. But the real path forward is make sure that you've got people that are coming from the same background that they're not they don't feel isolated that you've got leadership that supports and that you've that, that person sees themselves uh, as a leader going forward with the firm they have to feel invested in the firm mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right yeah they have to feel invested in the firm and they have to feel like the firm is um, uh, invested in them as well exactly exactly yeah. right um so um one of the things that you were sort of talking about there is, you know, the importance of representation. And, you know, we've definitely had that experience here where we have students who come and say, you know, I've, I never met a lawyer before I came here, or I never met a black person or, or a Latinx person who was a lawyer. 
um, before I came here, right? And there's something very um, something very powerful about seeing somebody in a role who looks like you and thinking, oh, right, like that's a thing that I could do. It's not something that is um, closed off for me. Which so I think that that representation piece is really important. Um, Another piece that I think is really important is the mentoring piece and the sort of, you know, uh, sponsor or champion kind of piece. Um, and that's another thing where I think um, young lawyers often sort of have questions about, you know, how do I build a mentoring relationship? Who do I look for um, to be a mentor? Right? Do I wait for somebody to come to me or do I reach out to people? Um, you know, is there a difference between somebody who is, you know, a mentor who's a couple years older than you versus somebody who's, you know, been at the firm for 10 years? Um, so if we could talk a little bit about, you know, creating those kinds of relationships, which I think are so critical to the success of lawyers, right? Who are the people who are helping you, you know, um, sort of, you know, right right in there with you and helping you and also the people who when you're not in the room are still are saying great things about you uh to help you rise. Yep. And exactly you you said it exactly correctly. I I I see these as two different things. There's mentorship and then there's sponsorship. Um both really critically important. Um uh, when it comes to mentorship, some people are going to be really good at it, some people are going to be lousy at it. And there's formal mentorship where you have someone who's specifically assigned to be someone's mentor by some kind of administer, administrator, or there, and there's informal mentorship, relationships that crop up as a part of, of your growth in the legal industry. And for example, at Archer, we have a formal mentoring system where we assign a formal mentor, capital M, to each, each, each law student. And sometimes it's more than one. Uh, and that works sometimes because sometimes they're good at it and, and that doesn't work other times because the, the person's just not as good at being a mentor. They're a little more of an odd duck. Um, and so when that happens, we, you have to stay vigilant and, and ask people to be honest and, and, and be able to change that up from an administration standpoint. But if you are a young lawyer uh, beginning your legal career, this is my own personal opinion. Walking around saying, uh, and I say this tongue in cheek, saying, "Will you be my mentor? Will you be my mentor?" Well, you know that you you can't you can't over control that. What you should be doing is trying to keep up your end of the bargain to create relationships with people. Some people are going to have a natural relationship with you. Some people aren't. For example, at my at my firm. Uh, I can think of multiple people, two people who didn't look like me, didn't have the same background I did, but we just got along and, and they ended up becoming my personal mentors over time. And I didn't go out saying, you know, I want this person to be my mentor. You have to, you've just got to be a little bit vulnerable and generate those relationships organically uh, as you go. Uh, as for sponsorship, there there is absolutely no substitute for having uh, a godfather or godmother, you know, in Spanish, a padrino or padrina, right? You need somebody who, when the doors closed, what do they say in Hamilton, in the room where it happened? Right. You need, you need somebody in that room to advocate for you. Um, and, and there's no substitute for that. And that is whether you're dealing with compensation, whether you're dealing with promotion, um, 
you know, elevation to partner or shareholder, you, you need to have that person. Hard work alone is not going to get that for you. So um, the first thing you got to do is you got to figure out who's in that room. Mm-hmm. You know, who are the people that are in that room? Who's on the board of directors? Who's on the personnel committee? And who's not? And make sure that they know you. And, and those kinds of sponsorships can develop. I've seen it. I've seen it where you get two equally spectacular associates. One person has somebody in that room saying, you need to pay attention to this person. And the other person saying, is not there. Mm-hmm. And so they go voiceless. And it's a, it's a big difference. Um, and, and look, you, again, you can't force that. If the, either right. the person loves you and <laughs> works with you and is willing to put their own reputation on the line, or they don't know you that well, in which case they won't. You've just got to grow those and, and be that kind of uh, likable person to, the, to, to people who have those positions. Part of what you said that I think is so um, important is that it, you can do really, really, really good work and that might not be enough, right? That, you, that there has to be um, some sort of, you know, kind of interpersonal strategy that is a part of being successful um, as well. And I do think that there are, you know, again, we have students who come here who are first gen. We actually started a couple years ago in our career development, sort of doing field trips to law firms, right? Because we have folks who had never been in a law firm before, and it can be a really intimidating um, environment, you know, if you if you haven't done that work before, or if you haven't been in that space before, um, you know, law firms can feel very formal. Um, they can feel like places that have a lot of rules, um, you know, that you don't know about. And so there, you know, it's not enough to sort of put your head down um, and and kind of hope for the best. It's not. It's it, you know, the, and that's I don't know what if that's sad or not, but mm. it may it may be. It doesn't matter where you work. You could be at the public defender's office. You could be at Greenpeace. You could be at Archer and Griner. Interpersonal relationships are part of what you need to to grow and mm-hmm. get promoted, and and that creates um, one of the obstacles for young lawyers of color who are coming into an environment where they don't have many of their peers. Uh, it's a cultural. Um, just feeling comfort level thing. I, I, one story we tease this person all the time. There's a young a young law student at the time who was working at a big law firm in New Jersey. I'll, I'll keep things anonymous. And they were they were going to a law firm event. It was they were going to take a chartered bus and do something. And she and she offered to bring like bootleg DVDs uh, of movies that they could all watch. That and and, and she's saying, "Look, these are in the theaters right now." And, you know, she, look, she grew up in Elizabeth. She come from this is what she's used to, right? And and yeah. the partners were looking at each other like, wait, is she really saying that we're going to pirate movies on our bus ride to the Supreme Court? Um, but you know, that's the kind of thing you just have to know exactly how to relate to people. Yeah. And those people might be different than you. Maybe they're golfers with ducks, portraits of ducks on their office walls, and and you've got to be able to make those connections. Yeah. And then on the the other side of that, right, of that sort of mentoring and, and sponsorship um, relationship, um, particularly, as you say, for um, folks who are partners, who are women or, or people of color, um, and there tend to be very small groups um, of those people, is the um, 
I was going to say burden, but burden maybe is not um, the right word to use. Um, but the the energy and effort that often goes into trying to be a mentor for a, for a lot of people, um, because there are so few of you in these positions um, of power. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about, um, you know, how can people navigate that experience? Because I think for a lot of us, once you get to a certain point, you want to be able to bring people with you. You want to be able to, to lift other folks up, um, but you're also trying to do all of your work. And, you know, and so there's there's a lot that can be on, on a person's plate. And I wonder if that is something, one, that you've had to juggle, and two, um, what's what's your advice to people who find themselves in that, in that position? Um, so I'm going to have a little bit of a different perspective on this. Of course, I find myself in that position, especially now that I'm HMBA president. Mm-hmm. I get emails from law students across the country every single day and and phone calls. And I don't think it's a burden. I think it's an mm-hmm. obligation to play that mm-hmm. role. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the vast majority, I'm speaking now from my own personal experience, the vast majority of the lawyers, the diverse lawyers that uh, I interact with have similar stories to mine. They've over, They've overcome certain hurdles that we've discussed. The the um, cultural differences, the adversity along the way, trying to fit in, not knowing so much that that those lawyers tend to be driven by a passion to give back. And yeah. I, I can't tell you that I've ever had an interaction, especially with a diverse lawyer who said, too many young diverse lawyers are coming to me asking me things. No, they don't. Mm-hmm. They, they, it's never mm-hmm. been a problem. And we make time for those interactions because they are priceless. We know how important they are. Yep. Um, I, I I have a story. I don't, do you remember who Janet Reno is? Yeah, of course. The former Attorney General of the United States. She she came to my high school back when she was the acting district attorney for Dade County in Miami, and she actively discouraged me from from going to law school, and that always stuck with me. Wow. Uh, and and so uh, it's a whole story there, but. The, the bottom line is it really left me with uh, an impression that I would never want to be in a position where I can't offer any, where I can offer anything but support for somebody who's in that position. Mm-hmm. I will always be there to support and return that phone call if I can. So, yeah. so I, I don't see it as a burden. I don't see it. Uh, you know, I, if you don't have the time to mentor these people, then, then maybe you've got too much other things going on in different arenas that are preventing you from doing it. It's uh, the vast majority of lawyers have not voiced that problem. It's, it's always the opposite. It's like, I wish so-and-so would reach out to me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to, you, you talked about the H, HNBA there. Um, and I want to talk about that um, as well. Again, sort of going back to what we were talking about earlier, um, where you were sort of saying, you know, as law students, it's it's useful to join some of these affinity organizations for lawyers. Um, you know, there are lots of lawyers who, once they get out of law school, don't, don't involve themselves with the State Bar Association, don't involve themselves with, you know, affinity groups um, um, like the Hispanic, the Hispanic National Bar Association. Um, so what's, what's, what's the pitch, right? I mean, how do you, what do you say to people who say, why would I want to, you know, waste my time with that? What, what, what are the benefits that come from having that kind of engagement? Sure. And this goes for anything whether we're talking about the National Bar, Hispanic National Bar, uh, Garden State Bar, whatever it may be, New Jersey State Bar, 
um, the the ability to interact with other lawyers and build your network is so critical to our jobs that being able to be part of an organization that allows you that opportunity is is really important. And you're, nobody's going to show up at an event, meet somebody for the first time, and expect to get business or job referrals. You've got to develop relationships with people and see them on multiple occasions and work, maybe work on projects together. And, and those can, that's how those bonds get generated. And a lot of my best referral sources have been generated from those kinds of opportunities. Um, and it also, and I, I truly believe this, I, I think it gives people motivation that they can't get elsewhere. Mm. Um, especially in these COVID times when everybody's burnt out and zoomed out. The, the, what the psychiatrists say is, is find something that fills you with passion, something that infuses you and gives you motivation and, and pursue it. And mm-hmm. places like the Hispanic National Bar Association, I mean, we're, we're raising money for law students. We're advocating on issues that are important to our community, whether it's immigration or uh, voting rights or whatever it may be. Uh, we're, we're expanding the pipeline and showing grade school students, high school students, college students, what, what Latino lawyers look like. And we're going into the community. We're doing community education initiatives. We're, um, those are the kinds of things that really kind of inspire me and make me feel impassioned to, to do what I do. Uh, and they enrich your life. And so, um, whatever it is, you got to find going to your job every single day, even if it's the best job in the world and you love it, uh, you need something more to keep you keep you happy. Um, so that's my pitch. It's it's good for business. It's good for your professional career, and but it's also good for the soul. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to ask you one one last question um, that I think encapsulates some of the things uh, that we've been talking about. So you published a piece in in November 2020 about diversity and the judiciary. Um, and in particular, you know, at that point, um, then President Trump had appointed huge numbers of, of judges um, to the federal bench. And you were, you know, making the push of how important it is, um, not just to make sure that there aren't a bunch of empty spots, but to make sure that as we're filling those spots, we're thinking about diversity. Um, and, and, you know, President Biden and his administration, you know, they're they're appointing a lot of people um, to the bench right now. Um, and I'm curious to, to hear from you about one, whether you think, um, you know, that the kind of work that that President Biden and, and his administration are doing right now, is that sort of sufficient um, in terms of diversifying the bench? And then the second piece is, you know, um, we always sort of talk about the value of diversity, but what are some of the things that you think are particularly valuable um, about having a racially diverse and and diverse on multiple levels um, judiciary? Why does it matter so much? I'm going to start, if you don't mind, I'll start with that latter part of the question and then get to the first part. So this is an issue that I'm very passionate about. The, The diversity of the judiciary is one of my, one of my tentpole items. I'm, I'm, I think about it every day. Um, there's no question. I, I think every scientist, scientists will agree that if you bring people together who have a diverse perspective, 
different perspectives, it's going to lead to better decision making. If you have everybody in, they're monolithic, they come from the same upbringing, same gender, whatever it may be, they're just not going to be as thoughtful about whatever issue. So diverse, diverse groups of people lead to better results, period. But when you're dealing with the justice system, for all the systemic reasons that, that we don't need to get into, there's, there's a significant number of people who are black or brown and Asian, gay, who are coming through the legal system. And it, and, and there's, the legal system has a credibility problem. It's mm-hmm. got to, it, 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 you know, if you, the people don't have faith that they're going to see justice in the legal system, then they're, they're going to undermine it. They're not going to support yeah. it. And having somebody on the bench who comes from a similar background gives it credibility, gives it more credibility. And it, you don't have, not every judge has to be diverse, you know, but that's not, diverse includes non-diverse people, right? You've got to mm-hmm. have a variety of people from different perspectives. But America looks a certain way. It has a certain demographic array nationwide, but the judiciary looks a different way. And, and so, especially when you're dealing with things like language barriers and cultural differences, mm-hmm. certain things might be obvious to people with similar backgrounds that aren't so obvious to others. And so it just leads to a better judiciary, the stronger judiciary. And I can't, I'm willing to bet there's not a single judge who wouldn't agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's, that's the goal. The goal, the goal is to get the judiciary to look somewhere in the ballpark of what America looks like, what New Jersey looks like, what Pennsylvania looks like. And so, and we're, we're not there now. Um, Obviously, and I'm not going to mince words. The Trump administration was horrific for for appointing people of color to the bench. There's never been an administration like it in modern times. Um, the Biden administration is a lot better, and I'm going to give them some credit. They've they've done a good job of reaching out to groups who are invested on this issue. The Hispanic National Bar Association. We we have calls with the White House frequently, mm-hmm. uh, but they're but they've not been perfect and. Mm-hmm. Um, They've been doing a very good job of appointing diverse lawyers to the bench. But when it comes to Latino lawyers, I would give them a C minus. So, um, you know, the Latino lawyers, Latinos, we are about 5% of the legal profession. We are 20% of the country and we're on pace to be 25% of the country. That's one out of every four. Um, And Latinos have been appointed to the bench in the, in the Biden administration at a slower rate than almost any other de- ethnic group. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we're actually losing ground instead wow. of gaining ground. And, and the White House knows we're not happy about it. And uh, a lot of the problem, believe it or not, is from the United States senators. There are some senators who've been really good about this. Uh, you know, Senator Padilla out in California has been very transparent about his process. Senator Schumer in New York has been very good about appointing people to, people to the second circuit, people of color. But other senators, who I will not name on this podcast, uh, have been very uh, secretive and, and the results have been terrible. And you know, there are states where there's no reason why we shouldn't be appointing Latino people to the bench. States like Texas, uh, uh, New Mexico, uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. I mean, we should be we have very robust Latino populations and we need to do better. Um, and, and not 
and these, so the, it, it's a complicated process, and there are many culpable parties there. We're doing better, but we're not doing good enough, in my opinion. Uh, the Republicans under the Trump administration, they rejected the blue slip process, the process whereby the home state senator can can veto uh, the, the candidate coming from their state. So they, they could just force mm-hmm. it through. If the Senate mm-hmm. would approve it, um, then they could just force it through. The Biden White House, in I guess in an interest of, of adhering to the, to the rules, they're still abiding by the blue slip process, which mm-hmm. in states where you have Republican senators – they're not moving candidates because of that. They have to those those Republican senators get a seat at the table in a dialogue. So it's it's a bit of a one. It shouldn't be a Republican Democrat issue right. because there are people of color on in both parties. Right. But it, it the process. You've got one administration that's trying to diversify the bench, but they're hamstringing themselves by abiding by rules that the other side doesn't have to follow. Yeah. And so you know those are just that's one of several in the weeds examples where we're, we're losing ground. You know, there's, there's that larger sort of frustration about being a party that plays by the rules, who is uh, working with a party that throws out the rules whenever, whenever it's convenient. So there's, and, and, and the party can't get out of its own way. Sometimes you've got infighting within the party, which, which on, you know, you've got issues like this, that shouldn't be should be no brainers and we yeah. just can't move as quickly as we need to. to yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I feel like we've we've touched on so so many things, and uh, it's been really uh, terrific just to have this conversation and to you know learn a little bit more uh, about you. And uh, my my hope is that you know we're going to have either you know current students or or potential students who um, are listening to this who say to themselves, "Wow, that could be me," right? I hope uh, so. Yeah, yeah. I hope so. And and you know, I'll say going back to the. Uh, juggling mentees and, and people reaching out. If anybody ever wants to reach out to me or to just to speak with me about their own experience or their own future, I'm certainly available and happy to do that. We, we will let them know. Thank you, Dean. I, I, this, this is a lot of fun. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations, minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.